when you do stand up and it goes well, it's not like taking heroin, but it's probably like taking heroin. Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present. I'm Ollie Double. And I'm Sophie Quirk. Who are we chatting to today, Ollie? We're talking to Bernard Padden, an absolutely delightful interviewee. I'm not going to say too much about him because you'll find out when you listen to him. But I will say this. He was in an episode of the final season of Tom Baker on Doctor Who, which to me, very exciting. Also, in that story, he comes to a sticky end, which I'm not (laughs) going to describe for you now because Bernard describes it very evocatively, let's say, in the interview. (laughs) Also, uh, this took place in July 2022 via the medium of Zoom. Bernard was Zooming to us from his living room uh, where he was enjoying the odd cheeky Siggy, which I think was partly to distract him from the fact that he was slightly nonplussed by using the to him unfamiliar format of Zoom. It was a brilliant chat. Over to Bernard. Uh, my name is, well, Bernard Patton. I think, I, do you know, I was thinking about that about 10 minutes ago. I think it was 1980, but I can't be that accurate, I think. Ollie, Ollie the comedy historian of the group, is nodding really emphatically, so I think he knows it was 1980. I think it was 1980 as well. I think, I, I remember talking to you before and you said that your first gig was at the comedy store when Les Dawson was there that's right yeah and I think that was early 1980 but I could be wrong yeah I think John Hegley uh was the compare in my first gig wonderful John Hegley by the way I'm big fan and since that kind of starting point in 1980 how continuously have you or did you perform stand-up it was on and off I wanted to progress as an actor not necessarily as a comedian. And I think I did stand-up, I can't remember. It was very on and off, at least three years on the alternative comedy series um, uh, circuit, if not for more. Then a a lull, then I did at least two big gay charity events at at, a West End theatre, I can't remember what it's called now. Then I stopped again and then resumed about 1992 or 1993 and did it for a little while longer and then stopped permanently. And would it be fair to say that during all of this time, you primarily were thinking of yourself as an actor who did some stand-up comedy on the side? Yes, Yes. absolutely right. So um, if the... A lot of stand-up comedians have an origin story. Do you think of yourself as having an origin story as a stand-up? Or could you tell us why and how you got started? I don't know. I I think, I don't know if I have an origin story. Do you mean as in motivation? Why did I want to show off? (laughs) To show off and be loved. When you do stand-up and it goes well, it's not like taking heroin, but it's probably like taking heroin. If it really goes well, you feel fucking great when you come off. There is nothing, it's even better than sex. It really is. So I think that 
That's what primarily motivated me, to be instantly loved by strangers, to be almost a pop star. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Oh. And I, I love how how candid you are about that that kind of yen, which I think exists in a lot of people who do stand up. I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to... It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful art form that does that for you. I guess there is a flip side, right, that it can go badly. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> be less delightful. Indeed, indeed. I mean, on the rare occasions where I did badly, and I have to say they were rare, but when I did do badly, when a comedian fails on stage, it is the worst experience. It really is. It's horrible. And in terms of while you were performing stand-up, what, what do you think made you distinctive or, or what, what made your work distinctive? You could think about the subject matter, the material, your performance style. What was particularly you about what you did as a comedian? Going back to David Bowie, because I was a David Bowie fan and, and probably greatly influenced by him. And also uh, um, Alice in Wonderland as well. I wanted to be original. I wanted to make some kind of impact. And I think I did, being a gay comedian and, and doing... Not only being gay, uh, because that would get tired quite quickly, but being quite a surrealist comedian. It, mm. Again, sorry if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I mean, that's what I wanted to ask you about, actually, that from what I've seen of your work, mm. what I love about the style of it is that you kind of let a story build very slowly. You don't necessarily overtly signal that there's a punchline here. Mm, yeah. Right. Um, it's it's for the audience to kind of follow you and to work it out, and, and I love that. So, can I just ask you a bit about what sort of why work that way? What does that give you, kind of creatively? But also, is that quite a challenging way to work? Does it bring challenges with it? I think that came naturally. Well, again, I think it was because my love of Lewis Carroll, my love of Alice in Wonderland, that build up of a, of a, almost an illogical story which is somehow compelling at the same time. Sorry, I've, sorry, Sophie, I've lost the thread of your second part of your question. <laughs> to be fair, I asked you a really like convoluted question. Um, which no, really... no, no, it's my fault because I'm an idiot. Go on, go on, Sophie. Um, it, it really sort of boiled down to, I mean, you've answered this half of it really, but why, why work in that kind of surreal way? So it came really kind of naturally to you, but also was it challenging to to get an audience on side with that or but were there challenges to it in my very first gig at the comedy store which is possibly the most terrifying experience because i remember i don't know if you've ever been to or ever seen videos of what comedians went through in in the the comedy store because there was a gong is it I don't know if you know about it. And if people weren't funny in the first couple of minutes, they were gonged off. And I remember waiting for my time and the comedian had gone on and I was still going through my head, my material. And suddenly the gong went and I was on. And I thought, fuck, I've got a slow burn here because I tell a story rather than come out with a gag. That was... Anyway, it it kind of worked for me. 
that night, thank God. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly, Sophie, but it just came naturally to me to tell stories. And I don't know why that is, why I adopted that approach rather than tell gag after gag after gag, that sort of thing. And by the way, I don't depreciate comedians that do one line gag after gag mm. after gag. That was never and couldn't be my style. Yeah, Again, I, that's... I'm sorry if that doesn't make sense. No, but... no, absolutely does. I think quite often when we ask comedians questions about why they do what they do, the answer is because because that's my thing. You know, I couldn't do anything else. And yes, you know, why, why would you not do what what sort of comes naturally? I know Ollie wants to ask you about a couple of particular parts of your work. Yeah. Yes, I do. I've got a couple of kind of slightly nerdy questions. Right, I'm so, uh, please do. So it's about particular things that you did. I mean, I'm really interested in the fact that you did a show called Human Toys, uh, which was a sort of one man show where you did, I think, Binky and Boo for the first time. Yes. I suppose why I'm interested in that is because it was quite rare for comedians on the circuit at that time to be able to do longer than 20 minutes really, or 30 yes. minutes. And so and you did an hour. Mm. So can you just tell me about how, you know, why you did that, what gave you the idea and how it was received? I think at that time I needed, again, it goes back to the acting thing. I needed an agent and I needed some kind of platform to present myself to would be agents. I I think I'd done a television advert, so I had enough money to hire the New End Theatre in Hampstead. Looking back on it, it was just mad. It was a mad gamble, really. I mean, I, I was completely incautious at that age, where nowadays I'd never do anything like that, hire a theatre in Hampstead kind of thing. Having said it, it was a small theatre. I think it it seated about 100 people. And, oh, God, I just, yeah, it, it was to, to advance my career as an agent. Yeah, having actually the writing bit, because, yes, normally a comedian at that stage is about 20 minutes, on, you know, on, on stage or in whatever pub they appeared in. It was quite a challenge to bring it up to an hour. Um, and I remember 48 hours before uh, I did the opening night of that, I only had something like 40 minutes. And I thought, oh, fuck. And I'd had a timeout review of me appearing in some kind of pub, which was really glowing. So I knew there was going to be a full house. So I felt the pressure was on I actually almost pulled out uh, because I thought I, I, I can't do this I really I, you know I can't do this I haven't gotten enough material uh, I never had that much self-belief in myself anyway I thought oh god I'm not good enough and then pop this thing called Binky and Boo came out of my head and thank god for Binky and Boo because it, it rescued me and became the highlight of the whole show and as you know I think I've told you it became an animation cartoon for Channel 4 
for the benefit of people who don't know uh, Binky and Boo, you can find that on YouTube. But could you just explain what Binky and Boo was? What's the what's the concept there? Uh, I think, I think, I'm not. <clears throat> no, it's a fantasy about a kind of almost science fiction fantasy about two gay vaudevillian performers that could travel through time and space doing their awful, awful routines to Hitler or to dinosaurs, to what you know, Louis XIV, blah, blah, blah. Uh, um, and I think, I may be wrong, I may be, you know how sometimes your memory plays tricks on you. I think it came about because of, uh, there was a horrible right-wing minister in Thatcher's government called Norman Tebbit. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, if you're unemployed, get on your bike and look for work. That's what my father did. And that became... I remember thinking about our phrase, and that I incorporated that in Binky and Boo. We got on our bikes, we went, we looked for work. And if you couldn't find work in the 30s, you travelled to another time period. And that was kind of the starting point of Binky and Boo. And it just became, and I just deve developed it into this total, as I say, fantasy thing. But then I've always been interested, interested in, you know, in things like Doctor Who and science fiction. So I, I guess that works its way into Binky and Boo. And a couple of things I wanted to pick up on there. First of all, were you in a uh, Doctor Who story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> was. Um, yeah. Uh, in the last series, uh, season that Tom Baker did, and it was a story called Full Circle, and I played a character called Tylos. I was in four episodes. I was rather a bad-tempered, nasty kind of character, Except, unfortunately, I turned good in the fourth episode. And for turning good, I got strangled by a marsh creature. <laughs> but actually, I have to say that that is one of the highlights of my life, doing Doctor Who. It's like a fa I would have done it for nothing. <laughs> I was a fan going into my favourite show of all time. And Tom Baker was my favourite Doctor Who. That's amazing, and also the way you described it uh, sort of sounded like your one of your routines. <laughs> the punishment <laughs> for turning good was being strangled by a marsh. <laughs> right. So, so when you did Binky and Booze, it's a double act. So you presumably did both characters when yes. you did it. But then, when you did it as an animation, you had you had a co-star playing the other one. Yes. And yes. who was that? Oh God! Oh, oh, oh God! No. I'm doing a disservice because I can't remember, so you'd have to go up on the... Oh, sorry, I, I know what it is anyway. I'm, I'm playing with you. It was Jimmy Jewell, wasn't it? Uh, no, no, no. He, he, he was absolutely wonderful. I, funny enough, to do the narration of Binky and Boo, I actually approached Alan Bennett. That was very cheeky. Um, and he said, oh, it's too... He really liked... The, the script I'd, I'd written for Binky and Boo. And he said, oh, it's a bit too close to what I do, which I thought was an enormous compliment. Um, still, he turned me down. But Jimmy, 
But um, Jimmy Jewell did it. I don't know if you know Jimmy Jewell again, a vaudevillian star. I think he pointed out I got the details of the V1 or V2 rocket wrong. <laughs> a lovely, lovely man. And, I, and again, I've always liked the vaudeville tradition of comedy. So it was fabulous having somebody with that connection uh, working on Binky and Boo. It was a great compliment. Because, I mean, for, for people who may not know, Jimmy Jewell was half of a classic variety double act, Jewell and Warris, with his cousin Ben Warris, right. and, then became, and then became a character actor. So, yes, there's an authentic link there to the vaudeville yes. tradition. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which grows in a in a in indirect way out of uh, Binky and Boo, was that you also, I believe, were in a double act called Secret Cakes. Yes, the Secret Cakes. Can yes. you tell us about the Secret Cakes, please? Because I love the name apart from anything. Oh uh, right, uh, th that was uh, an actor called Mick Garner, who uh, later became um, actually a very successful jobbing actor but later became quite famous in a series called London Burning, or London's Burning. I think he did about 12, 12 series. Uh, um, and still a great friend, of, great friend of mine, lives in Truffle Park. Uh, um, don't know why I mentioned that. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that was because... You know how some comedians get more secure as they perform? On, you know, in a pub or on stage. It was the opposite with me. I was always, always very nervous um, before I went on stage, almost to the point sometimes being sick. Um, and it never went away. And even though I was getting quite a good reputation as a comedian and developing a little bit of a fan club, I, the more I performed, the more I got nervous before... I went on, on stage or, you know, wherever. So I thought, well, what? Because I was alone. It was just me. So I thought, what if I had a double act? And I asked Mick, my friend Mick, um, if he'd formed me. I wrote all the material. And, um, and that's what we did. And it, it was really great. And it would have actually carried on, but the bloody bastard became very successful on <laughs> as an actor. <laughs> Sabotage that. <laughs> so it feels like a good moment, sorry, to ask about um, kind of other people who might have been important to you, Bernard, in, in the time that you were performing comedy. So um, you've mentioned having a double act partner, that's got to be an important formative relationship but I'm um, thinking about um, other people you worked with people who were a support to you um, people who were a hindrance to you um, agents commissioners anybody like that who were the sort of important people who were influential on on your comedy career uh, just friends and uh, well and also fellow comedians I think John Hegley massively important and in fact I don't think I would have started without John Hegley, because as I said, I think he was the compare at the comedy store the night I very first performed as a comedian. And he booked me 
in, you know, he, he supported me right to the hilt for years and years. Um, was it the politicians? His, um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it Sue that was one of the politicians. That's right. A great friend of mine. John Hegley was a massive, massive support for me. I developed friendships with Magritte the Rat, Andy Cunningham. Just so, 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 sorry, I just want to double click on that because people might not know about that. So Andy Cunningham was a puppeteer and he did a mind reading rat called Magritte. It was, I thought it was one of the funniest routines he did on the alternative circuit. I, I absolutely, well, anybody that has the title Magritte the Rat, you've got to say, this guy is going to be good. I, I, I think I think Andy went on to do a kid's show, I think. He, he did uh, Bodger and Badger. All right, I never saw that, but yeah. Uh, wonderful, wonderful guy. I'm, I'm just trying to think. Oh, definitely Sue from the pop. Definitely John Hegley, Sue from the pop. Oh, um, Paul. Um, oh God, oh God. Have I got news for you? Um, Paul Merton. Yeah, uh, we were great friends. Um, I, I, I knew his girlfriend. Uh, 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 God, very, very well. Um, I'm just trying to think who else. I think quite a few. Uh, there were some I didn't like, I have to say, so I, I shan't mention them. In terms of hindrance, Sophie, the one thing that still that rankles then and rankles now was uh, there was a venue called Jongleurs. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm, it yeah. was incredibly influential. It was a launching pad for, for comedians from TV careers and the booker there she refused to book me because she thought my act was and I quote iffy and that still rankles with me and I think it was her totally homophobic so you think iffy is a is a euphemism for too gay or was there do you well, know was anything else about the act that took against? Uh, obviously my interpretation is um, that I think she was homophobic but I'm just saying she used the word, uh, she used the word your act is iffy. And never explained any further? No. no. Uh, never gave me a booking. So I never, that's one venue I never appeared at. And as I say, I'm really still bitter about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Fair enough. I think most people have uh, some of those in there, um, in, in any kind of artistic history, really. <laughs> I think what's lovely as well to kind of hear about is, you know, as soon as I say what were the important connections to you, you're kind of talking about your peers, about having a network of comedians around you. Yes. Um, so was it a really kind of, so sometimes, obviously I wasn't there, Sometimes people talk about that time as very competitive, as very kind of, I'm going to do better than you. But what you're describing sounds like a friendly, supportive environment. So yeah. are both those things true or is one truer than the other? I was always quite supportive of the comedian. Yeah, and most comedians were supportive of me and would come around and we socialise as well. 
there might have been a competitive element, perhaps. I never really felt it. I never really felt it. I do remember actually once um, going to, I think it was Portsmouth, going doing a gig in Portsmouth. Hateful place, by the way. Brexit Central, I believe. I think at that stage, I, I just I was just beginning. I was supporting a comedian, and I rather than doing twenty minutes, apparently I did forty minutes. And this comedian was really pissed off that I'd, I'd shortened his time allotment uh, to perform. But most of the time, no. In my experience, it was quite a friendly atmosphere. I, I, I certainly didn't like a comedian dying on stage. In fact, it rarely happened. And if they did, I, I kind of felt, well, they deserved it because they were shit. Uh, I mean, I think you've you've sort of spoken about this quite a lot already, but just for the benefit of people who were neither there on the alternative comedy circuit in the 80s nor know about it what how would you describe it in general terms what was the circuit like when you when you when you were involved with it well it was small to begin with quite small and then Ma i think time out was the magazine that kind of gave you the listings and if you look at it from 79 to 80 i think you'll It'll list only about 10 venues. I can't remember. Not that many venues. And then within a few years, the vet, you know, it suddenly grew it grows to 50 or the venues kind of I had my own favorite venues in a way. The audiences, I have to say, were mainly you're obviously young mainly left-wing, I think, mainly kind of students, I, I, I would say. I think that changed over the, or later on into the late 80s. I think it got a lot more commercialised. It was a lot more haphazard. You were paid cash in hand and quite intimate in, in many ways, I, I, I would say. A lot of it taken on trust. People just ring you and say, can you turn up next Saturday or in two, or depending on the time, you know, getting the, into the timeout listings, can you turn up in two, in two weeks? I never had a manager. I just depended on people ringing me up. Uh, I was too lazy to find my own work. So I think it was kind of like a happy, hap, haphazard merry-go-round in many ways, at least in, that's my experience in the first couple of years. I think it became more professionalised, obvi you know, obviously. By then, I think I'd stopped doing stand-up and was working as a full-time actor. So so what was it like? I mean, you've you've alluded <clears throat> to this issue with, with jongleurs, um, but what was it like being an out gay performer in the 1980s on on the alternative comedy circuit? I mean, how did, in other words, how did the fact that you, you your act was overtly gay? How, what were the challenges of that? What were the advantages? How was it? I have to say, because people think, oh my god, did people throw 
bricks at you. None of that. Absolutely none of that. It was fine. It really was fine. Um, and I think, to be honest, um, actually, one thing that I was never comfortable with was sometimes being introduced as a gay comedian. Because, for instance, you wouldn't introduce Jeremy Hardy as a heterosexual comedian. So I kind of like, oh, I'm being pigeonholed here. Yes, I was, I was obviously a gay man. I was talking uh, at some point about gay experiences. But actually, going back to the Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland thing, I was more of a surreal comedian. That was more important to me. Because, as I say, if you sort of come across, if you say, oh, I'm a gay comedian, fine. Oh, a bit of a shock. But it soon gets tired. Mm. You have to, it has to be your material that carries you forward rather than your sexual identity, uh, I think. But, but in fact, I, I'm, I think, and that was in, actually in the 90s, uh, I did the Edinburgh Festival. I, I don't think I encountered any prejudice from uh, a, a, an audience at all, really. Because the other thing I wanted to pick up on, and it's a bit of a broad question, really, but I know that you were involved with kind of gay politics in different ways, like, for example, yes. lesbians and gays support the minors. Yes. Um, but but for the benefit of people who are listening to this who are young people today, how do you think things have changed for LGBTQ plus people from the 80s to now in the broader political sense of, you know, how, how you know, everyday life and so on? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think in, in terms of, um, oh, enormous, I think things are better, I, 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 would, I would say. I was, uh, when was that? 1973, I think, when I first became a pufter, I think. <laughs> uh, um, and, and really, it was, it was quite a lonely experience. And we had a horrible, uh, oh, what, I was going to say, I can't even remember, Detective Constable, what, head of Manchester Police, and James Anderson. James Anderton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I had certain run-ins with the police when I was very young, which I won't tell you about, uh, but they were incredibly nasty. Uh, um, in the eighties, when I lived in I lived in London for ten years from seventy nine to eighty nine, that was the era of AIDS, and that was a really, for me, a horrible experience. Uh, I, I had a lot of friends who who died uh, of AIDS. I went to hospital, visiting them in hospital, seeing them with carpose sarcoma and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. All of them. Uh, uh, very young myself worried and terrified that I might get AIDS and blah 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 blah. so that that wasn't so great Uh, and oh incidentally although there are people like James Anderson saying gay people 
are swimming in a cesspool of their own making, you know, in regards to AIDS. And although in the right-wing press there was a lot of don't get near a, a gay person and all that, I have to say, in my own experience, people were very, very loving towards gay people at, at that stage. I don't, uh, um, I don't think there was as much prejudice as is being made out today that there was in those days. Anyway, sorry, fast forwarding to now, I think things are a lot better for gay, le lesbian, trans people. Although, yes, there are still bigots out there. There's still attacks, physical attacks on gay men, gay women. Two women uh, a few years ago in Manchester were beaten up on the tram just for holding hands. So it, undeniably bigotry is still going on. But it's not, it's not on the scale it was when I was younger. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that things are a lot easier for the gay community. I include everybody, by the way, in that. Sorry to, you know, uh, uh, lesbians, trans, et cetera, et cetera. Then I think there were 40, 50 uh, uh, year, years ago. You're fantastic. That's a brilliant answer. Uh, the, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is to do with a different aspect of identity and one that, you know, you might not have such a sort of direct connection with, but one of the kind of critiques, really, the standard critiques of of alternative comedy in the eighties, that it was solidly middle class. Mm. How fair or unfair do you think that is as a as a view of how things were? It depends what you mean by middle class. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Certainly, you could probably class me as middle class because I because of my accent. It, it, yeah, it was neither northern working class or, or, or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, it, it probably, I suppose, in a, in a very lazy definition, it probably was, in a way, uh, middle class. You had a lot, although you had a lot of working class um, comedians and, and, in fact, mem members of... The audience, um, but yeah, <clears throat> I can't escape that criticism, really. And I, I think it, 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 there's a validity to that criticism. It's Fantastic. A, or, or rather, or rather, observation rather than criticism. I'm just going to have another cigarette. Sorry. That's okay. And I'm just turning my paper over, which I'm hoping the mic's got, because it's all good atmos. I guess um, just to pick up on that question of sort of um, middle class and working class comedy, I mean, something Wally and I have observed kind of in the literature, maybe particularly about that time, but it's kind of still really prevalent now, is people will observe the, the probably very fair honest truth that women greatly outnumbered and that a lot of the work happening that people's living at a middle class mm. but maybe that ignores some brilliant vibrant 
talent that was there that then gets overlooked because we're so caught up in this narrative that they're kind of weren't women that there there weren't working class performers that there weren't as many gay performers so I guess my, my question is something about how how diverse did you feel that the the circuit was then when you were performing did you well, feel like you were among a really diverse circuit or did it feel like as sometimes people narrativize it a lot of middle class white guys well in terms of gender it really wasn't diverse I can tell you now I think mm, I think there are only two women comedians on it really I think it was it was almost 97 percent male uh, certainly in the early 80s obviously the exception was French and Saunders uh, um, and there, sorry I'm, I can't remember both their names and they were wonderful comedians, there were two fabulous women who performed, at, who were never on television. And I guess that was because they were women, they were women mm. disgracefully, that they weren't on television, because they were women, you know. But certainly it, it wasn't, um, it was never diverse in, t in terms of uh, uh, gender. There are only a few women, and I have to say, they got um, sexist remarks aimed aimed at them uh, uh, occasionally. I'm just trying to think. I think actually there was an element of some people pretending to be middle. Uh, sorry, pretending to be working class on. on uh, uh, the alternative circuit. What really, funny enough, what really irritates me, because I loathe Thatcher and everything her government stood for, was I couldn't stand those comedians uh, that um, it kind of went on stage and made joke or made remarks about Margaret Thatcher to get cheap, lazy, easy laughs and I suspect half of them are right wing anyway uh, really I mean obviously that there were some people whose acts were overtly political and from the left but I did observe quite a, a number of not very good comedians just cynically doing anti-Margaret Thatcher lazy jokes to get easy to get easy laughs Sorry, I'm not sure that answers your question, Sophie. No, no, it does. And I, I guess as well, you mentioned you would sometimes be introduced as a gay comedian. Mm. And I mean, that choice of language, that isn't about how many comedians on the bill are gay. It's choosing to draw mm. attention to you as a gay comedian the way that you have articulated. But, but did you also feel in a sort of minority or kind of particularised in that sense as well that you were I in the fact I was in a minority that was the you know I absolutely rejoiced <laughs> in that that was one of my selling points in a, in a way um that um it it kind of made me to an audience instantly fascinating what 
you know, what is he going to talk about? What is he going to, uh, uh, this is new. So that, that kind of thing. So I actually liked, I, I think in a way, being a gay comedian gave me a kind of advantage at that time, if that, make, if that makes a crazy kind of sense. I mean, I wanted to, this sort of relates to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is influences on your comedy. I mean, you've already mentioned Lewis Carroll and Alison Wonderland, and you've also talked about, um, you know, being influenced by sort of vaudevillians. Um, mm. But I, mean, I think, I don't want to sort of, I don't want to anticipate too much what you might want to say in, in response to that. But I think what's interesting about the point in time that you started doing comedy was that it, it became, it was now possible for a, a comedian to be completely and overtly out on stage. Yes. Whereas there had been gay comedians who were, you know, before that, who'd been camp and gay, but it wasn't completely explicit that they were gay. So I just, I mean, that that may or may not be relevant to how you want to answer the question, but my, my, my question is what influences were there, you know, in when you started out, what, what comedians were you influenced by? Well, um, Again, as a school kid, my main influence was Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I think that gave me a love of absurdity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Going back even further, and what I directly, directly influenced me, especially my facial expressions as a, when I was doing comedy, was Buster Keaton, uh, the silent comedian, who, you know... If you you know had this kind of blank, blank expression of almost pathos, which I kind of tried to adopt when I was delivering, I was trying to look as sad as possible uh, when I was you know delivering my material. Buster Keaton was a huge uh, influence on me. Uh, sorry to be obvious, but obviously Peter Cook again. Um, again, because of the absurdity uh, in influence, uh, probably, <clears throat> probably uh, some of the the camp comedians from the fifties and sixties, like Frankie Howard, uh, but not co probably not consciously, but I've probably channeled. I mean, I now look at Frankie Howard. You know, if I watch. Uh, a program, you know, 40 or 50 years on, and just think he's so funny, uh, regardless of how weak his, his material is. It's just his, you know, the way he expresses him, himself. So I think that was probably an, an unconscious uh, influence. Oh, and another one um, was an American comedian called Phyllis Diller. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, who I really admired. I thought she was a very intelligent lady. And I think she, I always loved her whenever she came on TV. And I think, again, she was possibly another unconscious influence uh, on, uh, on me. Because there's quite a camp sensibility to Phyllis Diller, you know, yes. in the costumes and things that she wore and... Yes, ind indeed, indeed. And uh, go on, sorry. Sorry, no, 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 not at all. I was, I was just going to say, there was another thing that I wanted to ask, which is, did you see your own experience reflected in the comedians you saw 
you, you know the, the you know your your view of the world and you know your experiences that you had in your life did you see that reflected in the comedy that preceded you that that came before you i'm not quite sure i understand that question well uh, i i suppose you know if this podcast is about uh, diversity yeah what we've seen in the last you know 40 odd years is that comedy generally has become more diverse you know um so you know the, the, there's many more comedians of color for example yeah and indeed so and so the the, oh, the issue there... to mention, sorry I've, when sophie was, sophie when you were asking me the question about diversity i forgot to mention i think there was only one black comedian that was a guy called felix i don't know if you've ever interviewed him terribly nice guy but again uh, it was it was white male uh, the alternative comedy circuit at the time so sorry to interrupt you no 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 so 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 my point is if if people who weren't represented in comedy start to come into it what's interesting to know is before they were doing that were they seeing the kind of experiences that they had for example as a young black man or whatever reflected in the comedy so i suppose for you it might be you know were you experience? You know, were your experiences as of a kind of a northern gay guy of of a certain generation? Would, would you know? Did you see that reflected in the comedy that existed? Oh God! At the time, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, obviously not. Yeah. Uh, far, far from it. Um, the comedians, uh, well, Bernard Manning. Uh, so I just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> and for the benefit of younger listeners, Bernard Manning, you'd need to Google him really, but was a, a working men's club comic uh, of a particular style and with a particular penchant for, let's say, reinforcing a whole bunch of prejudices. And, and total hatred, yes. <laughs> yeah, and total hatred, I think is fair as well. Yes. In fact, yeah. uh, younger listeners, maybe don't Google him. Yes, that's also a possibility. <laughs> Quite, indeed, indeed. Are there challenges, or have there been for you challenges in balancing a comedy career with a home life? With, with, with home a home life, life yeah. <laughs> How? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose if you had, like, um, five children and a troop of, like, really determined parakeets that needed looking after then going out in the evening might be difficult but um and also sometimes people talk about the difficulties of balancing comedy with other work but was that ever something that struck you no never never great thank you and thinking about the comedy industry now or or what you uh, know about what you can see about it how diverse would you say the industry is now and do you think that that has changed since the time when you were first performing? Oh, I think it's incredibly diverse. A, in two ways. One in religion, Mm -hmm. I think, um, in terms of you have more people that sometimes define themselves as Jewish or Muslim or or whatever. I think that's a good thing, by the way. Um, And disabilities, you have more disabled people. Again, I don't, again, yeah, never had a disabled, I can't remember ever seeing a disabled comedian in my time. The only worrying thing I would say is if 
in my day, most comedians were perceived were either on the left of politics or perceived as on the left of politics. Now, when I turn on the TV, I'm seeing quite a lot of young right-wing comedians. Very, by the way, very talented comedians. But I'm very worried that they're kind of right-wing. Well, that's really interesting because people will still talk about, oh, where are all the right-wing comedians? All the com- all the comedies really left-wing. When you say you see right-wing comedians, what is it about their material or their their performance that makes you think that's a right-wing comedian? Because these things aren't usually very well defined. Uh, only because uh, 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 there's an awful new channel called GB News. I don't know if you've seen it. I caught... I call it KGB news. Um, <laughs> and I see them actually, when they're not actually performing as comedians, giving their views. And I'm like, oh, blimey, you're a Tory, you're a Tory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you can actually perceive it in, 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 I mean, I don't watch that many com- young comedians on TV now. But so, you can perceive somebody as right wing or, 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 or kind of left, left wing, um, mm. and as I say, I, th- I I find it worrying, not worrying, I suppose, that that there are. Oh, I think things are. I think things have shifted in terms of comedy towards the right. That, as I say, that doesn't mean to say they're not. Ta- they they really are very talented, and, that, and that's even more worrying. <laughs> I wish they weren't, uh, but they are. Um, but I, I think um, young people's comedy is turning towards the right or or has become apolitical. OK, so our final question is, what do you think needs to change for the comedy industry to become more diverse? Or to keep becoming more diverse? I, I don't really know because, I, because I've, I've not worked in it for so long. I, I, I don't know what the actual conditions are I suppose another way or maybe a more useful way of framing the question is when you were performing what did you perceive as the barriers to it being more diverse I wanted to see I I, I remember I always wanted to see more women comedians that was one thing I always wanted to see more women as I said there were at least two female comedians that were working in the circuit that when I was doing it, and they got a harder reception initially, anyway, than the male comedians did. I don't, I don't know. I well, my generic answer would be, and this goes to all works of life: just be more equal with each other in terms, certainly in terms of uh, gender. I mm. think. I'm sorry to give you such a wishy-washy answer. I mean, I'm so much out of touch that, <laughs> obviously, with the world of comedy, that uh, yeah. I don't know what the exist the existing circumstances or conditions that people are working on uh, are facing. So I don't yeah. know what the challenges are. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough, um, and a daft question on our part, uh, really, from that point of view. But no. I guess from what you said, like. 
there there are less there were less women um, yeah. around than men, um, strikingly so. But oh. also that women tended to get a harder reception. Yeah. So was one of the things that needed to happen. Um, hopefully, did happen. The audiences broadened out what they thought a comedian looked like a little bit. Yes, possibly. Yes, yes. I think in a way, for, in a way, for as much as, as it was new for us as performers to go out there, it was probably new for an audience as well to receive a different kind of comedy. Don't forget, they, they, were, they were used to TV comedians who delivered one-liners, that sort of thing, usually quite right-wing as well comedians so I, I guess it was new for them so audiences I guess had to kind of uh, not behave as their parents be, might have behaved as an audience if that again if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah yeah it really does so Sophie what was your takeaway from that one Oh, it's so interesting because we interview a lot of comedians between us, but it's really interesting to interview somebody for whom comedy was not the main focus, where it was on the side of other wonderful things that he was doing in his career. And I think that's a wonderful thing to remember about comedy is that it can be that leg up for people, that thing that people are doing alongside other things whether the other things eclipse the stand-up or the stand-up eclipses the other things or it doesn't really pay to put them in a ranking <laughs> it's, it's really nice to hear someone talk about it in that kind of context yeah I mean I think for me it was it was the thing of um well really I mean he must have been a brilliant comedian I never saw him do stand-up but he must have been a brilliant comedian uh, because we know that he became successful and did it for a few years. We know that he did this thing that he mentioned, the Pretty Policeman's Ball in 1984 and 1985 at the Piccadilly Theatre in aid of London Gay Switchboard. I looked that up <laughs> from earlier research notes. Um, and that he had one of his routines turned into a, a, an animation with a famous character actor playing one of the roles. All of those kind of things. Like He, he must have been good. And yet he got... Well, two things. One is that he got less confident as he went on, hence starting his double act mm. secret cakes. And also that he's just not well remembered. Mm. You know, he was he was in one of the first, probably the first Channel 4 show about lesbian and gay issues in early 1983, doing an adaptation of some of his routines. Like, he, he did things. He, he was important, but he's not necessarily remembered. And that makes me sad because I think... I think he was awesome. Yeah, I have to say, some little snippets of his work do from that era do survive. Um, and they're so funny. They're so well-crafted, so beautifully slow burn. Yeah, and I think, I think as well, he makes the point that he didn't just want to be seen as a gay comedian. He said it was a selling point. But he also, he thought more important was the fact that he was a surreal comedian. And I think that's true. His sort of confessional stories about love as a gay man in London in the 1980s. <laughs> That's part of it, but they're so weird as well, in, in, a, in the best possible way. Yeah, and I think as well, to hear him talk, although he acknowledges, and I was certainly wincing when he was talking about some of the awful discrimination that he experienced and that was just the water he had to swim in during the 1980s. To hear him also talk about the fact that he um, felt love from and support from even people who were outwardly homophobic, 
is really nice as well to hear that kind of triumph of the human spirit, even in that very difficult context. Yeah, I mean, he was he was in he was prominently involved in lesbians and gay support the minors, which were obviously celebrating the film Pride. Which mercilessly cut out Bernard Padden's character. Yeah, poor old Bernard is a character <laughs> in Pride. That's that's that in itself is that an erasure. That is injustice. <laughs> that is injustice, right? Let's let's get make them to go go back and refilm and <laughs> put a whole character in. Do it but again, it, guys. Do it again. Do it again, definitely. But the, the point is that one of the things he said to me about that was, the he said he said this film was good, but the the scene where. Um, the, the the lesbians gay support the miners arrive in the Welsh mining village and they go into the club and everybody sort of you know standoffish and everything. He said it wasn't like that at all. He said it was people came over, they were fine straight away. A couple of people might have had a problem with it, but generally people were okay. Yeah, and that's just lifts the spirit. But you know, on the other hand, James Anderton. Oh, James, James Anderton. Anderton. What he he actually? I think James Anderton was a swirling cesspool of his own making. And that's an excellent place on which to end this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Standard Diversity Podcast. Produced at the University of Kent with support from the Participatory and Co-Produced Research Fund. Hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quark. Editing and music by Anki Dams. So you're telling me. A like and subscribe? It's a thing. For the Stand Up Diversity Podcast.